Pinegate Renewables is a fully integrated renewable energy company powering the nation's energy transition with trusted utility-scale energy and storage solutions. Building projects from a community mindset, Pinegate is committed to delivering sustainable value where we live, work, and operate. Visit pinegaterenewables.com slash learn more. Welcome to a very special episode of the Interchange Recharged. We're in San Francisco for the 2023 Solar Energy and Storage Summit. We're recording the podcast live throughout the event across three special episodes. On today's show, the first of our three, I'll be bringing you highlights from the first day of the summit. I'll be speaking with Anna Siefkin, Senior Advisor, the Department of Energy's Office of Technology Transitions. There are so many parts of this that we need to think through in terms of risks and challenges so that we can actually help to unpack and identify the barriers and break them down one by one. Abby Hopper, President and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association. We think about communities and we think about local jurisdictions and what they want their energy mix to look like. Resilience is playing a larger and larger part. And Becca Albertus-Jones, Director of the DOE's Solar Energy Technologies Office. I have a lot of hope that developing those kinds of new capabilities can make a big impact here too, in addition to regulatory or policy solutions. We'll be exploring the current state of the solar market, the key takeaways from a packed first day of presentations, and finding out where our resident solar specialists think the market is heading in the coming years. Plus, the best bits from today's presentations and extra interviews with leading solar and storage industry experts. So come with me as we head through the doors of the Gold Ballroom at the Grand Palace Hotel and get the 2023 Solar Energy and Storage Summit underway. It's been a busy networking morning, and that sound signifies the start of the summit, and all the delegates are heading into the hall. I've got my coffee ready to go, and looking forward to the opening remarks by Chris Seipel, Vice Chair of Energy Transition and Power Renewables for Wood McKenzie. What a difference a year makes. I think when we were here last year, I think the day before the event started, the Biden administration just had their executive order putting the moratorium on the additional tariffs on solar panels so that we had a lot to talk about about that. Build Back Better had already been declared dead by Manchin twice, I think, but still was not completely off of the table and we did not know that IRA was going to happen. So a lot of change since um, last year. We now have long-term certainty with the IRA bill. Everybody's still trying to digest IRA. There's a lot of complexity associated with the details of it, interconnections, scaling the workforce, all of those things remain obstacles to scaling of the industry. And the situation's really flipped where it kind of used to be the hard part was getting a PPA. Now the easier part is getting a PPA signed with the demand for renewables and it's everything that comes before the PPA that is kind of the challenging part of the business right now. So I think looking for solutions to these issues will be kind of the focus of a lot of our conversations today. One of the people trying to find solutions to those problems is Anna Siefkin. She's senior advisor at the DOE's Office of Technology Solutions. Anna has spent her career making the business case for energy efficiency, climate tech innovation, and building performance as a means to address the world's energy challenges and the global urgency of climate change. Her focus is on moving energy and climate tech innovations from the research lab to market. 
Anna, thanks for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. So we just uh, heard a really nice keynote speak from Michelle Davis uh, from Woodmac. What are some of your takeaways from that? You know, the most important thing that I was hearing was the size of this market, some of the risks that we're seeing in terms of making sure that we're deployed, and the importance of actually pairing solar plus storage. So I work on storage a significant amount of my time. And so for me, I'm just glad to see that the results from all of the research are really focusing on the fact that we can't do it without both because there are so many utility-scale projects that are out there. Many of them are sitting in the queue. We heard about how the queue is too long, and that's a huge risk for this industry. But what we are seeing with the passage of this important set of legislation between Bill and Ira is that manufacturing is actually being put in the ground. Those things are going to be permanent. So the jobs may not be there yet, um, but we will see all of the results coming in the next 10 years, which is a critically important time for us to really, really push back on climate change. So from a storage standpoint, what do you think is needed in the industry and where do you see it going over the next three to five years? Well, as, as uh, my boss, the secretary says, uh, deploy, deploy, deploy. So I think it's going to be critically important for us to get storage manufacturing set up. Um, we get these plants built. There were some important announcements in West Virginia over the past couple of weeks um, with manufacturing plants actually coming back to the United States. So we have uh, fewer supply chain issues in this utility scale size, right? Because we're tracking somewhere around 30 different technologies and about 100 companies. So we don't know who's going to win. We don't know who the biggest ones are going to be yet. But we are seeing some considerable success in terms of actually starting manufacturing. I also see important areas around public-private partnerships because you really need to make sure that industry is being heard. So we as the federal government can do a lot, right? We can actually put incentives in place. We can have tax credits that come forward, particularly for, uh, for production. Um, but at the same time, we really need to have our partners out in industry supporting storage as well. So one of the things that we've done recently in the Office of Technology Transitions, where I work, is we've launched a partnership, an MOU, with EEI and EPRI and the Long Duration Energy Storage Council to align on a set of goals so that they're following some of the DOE um, Earthshot-related goals, which is a 90% cost reduction for storage within the next 10 years, as well as, you know, addressing some policy and regulatory concerns of industry. Um, but it also aligns us so that we're walking in lockstep. We're able to actually uh, be together and strategizing on ways to move things into the future. And a lot of that is tied back into also recently announced liftoff report for long-duration energy storage. So we put together, um, it's a 90-page document, so it's not a, necessarily a light read, but it has all the barriers and challenges spelled out that we've seen in industry. It's at liftoff.energy.gov. And so anyone can download that document, um, provide us with comments if we missed something that needs to be considered. But those are the kinds of things that I think we need to do to actually really get this deployment. Again, number one priority is deployment. Get all those, those uh, activities off the ground. Now, on the supply chain, uh, I know that from the solar side, we've seen that alleviate the constraints we had alleviate somewhat recently. Uh, do you find the same going for the storage side as well? So supply chain is different in long-duration energy storage. So because we're tracking different technologies, many of these are not based on either cobalt or lithium-ion, right? So they're based on iron or uh, uh, different um, bromides. It's, a, it's zinc. It's more readily available materials. 
Um, and so we're not seeing the same kinds of supply chain issues. We're, we don't have to have an electrolyzer, for example. I mean, there's all sorts of different things about these technologies. What I love is it is American innovation at work. So we have uh, this entire ecosystem that's developing across the country in key cities in particular, where people are spending a lot of time trying to figure out different ways of having the same kind of solutions for utility scale. It's fascinating to see uh, the ingenuity that people come up with and now manufacturing it in the United States. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because, I mean, the technology that's being developed is using different compositions that's right. for the longer duration storage, which is key because they were all going down to, like you said, cobalt, lithium. But now there's a couple different technologies being developed that can help alleviate those supply chain constraints. Right. Well, we also had geographic constraints um, because some of the, you know, about 90 percent of the existing utility scale solar, excuse me, storage in the United States um, is pumped hydro. But you can't do pumped hydro in the middle of the desert, right? Or, you know, you just need to have certain bodies of water, for example. Whereas these new technologies, in many cases, they're, you know, you can you can put them anywhere. And that's really helpful. Some of them are better for more dense urban areas. Some of them are readily available for deployment in rural communities. Um, and by the way, with rural, it's really important for us in terms of energy generation to make sure that we're really thinking about the communities and how they're impacted by any of this deployment. And so we can meet our EJ40 goals as, at the federal government by making sure that we're just thinking through how each geography might need energy differently, served differently, different times of year, you know, hot and cold, very different kinds of technologies. And you mentioned you were tracking a number of different technologies and companies. Uh, anyone that you can talk about that you're kind of excited about or that seems to be a real game changer? Well, you know, I, we don't pick favorites. I mean, some of our uh, some of these companies are receiving funding through the different calls that are coming out from the federal government. I mean, we have right now somewhere between $350 and $450 billion that we're sort of pushing through. It's coming out from the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. It's coming out from the Office of Technology Transitions, from the Office of Electricity. So it's all of these different technologies. They're, they're getting a chance to deploy and pilot, which is really important. And there's also a lot that are coming through our national labs, but really not picking favorites. I mean, we are in a place where we feel it's all of the above. Like we're going to try as many different technologies as possible, but we are focusing on ones that um, are more than 10 hours, right? Because that's a key thing that lithium ion cannot currently do is more than 10 hours in uh, different geographic locations um, so that we're really um, diversifying our portfolio for storage. Any areas for the conference that you're looking forward to? You know what? I always love uh, meeting everyone who's here. I mean, that's my favorite part. So the presentations are amazing. The research, I've already taken 20 pages of notes, right? Because there are so many parts of this that we need to think through in terms of risks and challenges. And I love to hear from industry what they're thinking so that we can actually help to unpack and identify the barriers and break them down one by one. Great. Thanks for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. And thank you again. Great seeing you again from the uh, last summit we had. I know, had. that's right. We were just <laughs> together, it seems like. How time flies. The IRA has proven a major boon to the transition to a clean energy future and will have a transformative impact on the U.S. solar and energy storage sectors. Beyond the IRA, what other policies will be vital? I've just finished sitting in on a panel discussion on that exact topic, featuring Dr. Becca Jones-Albertus, director of the DOE's Solar Energy Technologies Office. 
She explored the policies that will accelerate solar adoption. So let's sit down with her now and find out what they are. All right, Becca, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So you were just on a panel uh, discussing the IRA and, and other kind of policies in place with Chris Seipel and Abby Hogan. What were some of the key takeaways from, from that discussion? Well, we talked about how transformative IRA is. So in fact, I think some of the estimates are it'll increase deployment 30 to 40 percent uh, over where it would be. But otherwise. But then we talked about what else is needed. And in particular, that interconnection policies that, uh, you know, solving transmission issues, supply chain, um, but also, uh, you know, really addressing equity and ensuring the benefits of the clean energy transition benefit all Americans are other really important pieces to, uh, you know, getting maximum benefits from IRA and really accelerating our decarbonization trajectory. So what is the DOE doing on on those fronts, like you mentioned, equity and the other initiatives? Yes, so many things. Uh, I'll just try to highlight a few, but it's a really fun time to be at the DOE because we really do get to uh, try to address so many of these problems in different ways. Um, On the equity front, uh, we're doing a number of things. Um, We just announced uh, last week a $13 million program that is providing 12 different projects that are really focused on providing workforce training opportunities to underserved communities uh, and preparing those uh, workers who will be trained to benefit from the hundreds of thousands of jobs we expect to be added in the clean energy transition. So really excited about bringing a real focus on increasing the diversity and the equitable benefits that come from um, the jobs in the clean energy transition. Uh, We have another initiative called the Community Power Accelerator, which is uh, looking at community solar projects and really supporting the growth of more community solar projects that bring benefits to their local communities. And those are economic benefits. They can be benefits in um, electricity electricity bill savings, but also job creation benefits and and energy resilience benefits. So we're supporting projects, giving them tools to increase the number of benefits that that they bring to those communities, and then connecting successful projects with um, financing that exists to support those projects. So those are a couple highlights, but we're really trying to bring an equity focus into all the work that we're doing. And we need to build that into considering how we address everything from interconnection to um, siting of new manufacturing facilities. Yeah, just another key piece to the many aspects of the energy transition, which will which will definitely make an impact. Uh, you mentioned, uh, and we've talked about before on this podcast, the interconnection issues. Can you explain a little bit more about the Interconnection Innovative Exchange? Yes, Interconnection Innovation Exchange, or we all call it I2X, is our attempt to really bring creative solutions to get to simpler, fairer, faster interconnection processes. We know we're not in a good state with interconnection. In 2022, the average project that came online was an interconnection queue for five years. That's up from three or four years, just a couple years prior. And we have enough solar in the interconnection queue today to meet our decarbonization needs if that were all built. But uh, we know we see a lot of attrition through decarbonization queues. So it's a huge problem, as everyone in the industry recognizes. And what we're trying to do is bring together industry members, grid operators, utilities, state and local governments, regulators, community organizations, environmental justice groups, all these stakeholders to the table, provide them with data, analytics, technical assistance from our national laboratories, and develop a roadmap to how we get to better processes, and then really harness that creativity to think about how we can get there as fast as possible. 
Any other policy initiatives that you think would be helpful to help drive the interconnection issues more forward and get some resolution? Because there's a lot of different parties that are that are have different agendas, and so kind of bringing that together will be critical. Yes, and you know certainly FERC is looking at the regulatory issue, and you have other regulatory bodies who are looking at those pieces. Um, I think one of the things that we're trying to bring in actually is looking at tools and analytical solutions and how can we have advanced modeling capabilities and data science that can help us move and do some of the uh, studies and scenarios that need to be looked at much, much faster and how can they be reliable enough that they can be trusted by grid operators and utilities um, as real tools in these challenges and puzzles. And so I have a lot of hope that developing those kinds of um, new capabilities can make a big impact here too, in addition to regulatory or policy solutions. What are some of the things that you're seeing at the DOE that gets you most excited about the energy transition and where we could be in five, 10 years from now? I'm really excited about the speed and pace at which we're moving. You know, every year you look at how much more clean electricity generation we have and, you know, we're we're notching those numbers up so incredibly fast. So while we're we have a long ways to go to a, get a 100% clean grid from 40% today. If you look at just what's happened and the rate of change over the past decade gives you hope that over the next decade, we could really get get to that 100% number. Yeah, it's amazing just to see the acceleration over the past two years. Yes. You mentioned the decade, but it continues each year that goes by. There's more and more interest. And, and to your comment about the, the initiatives with the community, it, it's nice to see that a lot of the younger generation are much more interested in the energy transition as a career yes. and being a part of it than they were historically. Yes, it's great to see so many young folks who see this as being a future career pathway, and we're trying to give them a lot of opportunities to get their feet wet, get a, get a real feel for you know how exciting these careers can be and how important they are. Any other sessions that you're really excited about for the remainder of the conference? We just heard uh, Steph Spires talking about community solar, and that's an area where we've set uh, ambitious goals for community solar deployment and community benefits. And uh, it was really inspiring to hear Steph talking about um, what her uh, company Solstice has been working on and about what the market needs in general and hoping that others were inspired to do more in the community solar market. Becca, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. Pinegate Renewables is a vertically integrated renewable energy company powering the sustainable energy transition. With one of the largest operational fleets and solar development pipelines in the nation, we support sustainability commitments and provide renewable solutions for utility and commercial partners across North America. We have a trusted history in executing utility-scale projects that generate cost-effective energy solutions and provide attractive long-term investment opportunities. Pinegate built solar projects with a community mindset and is committed to delivering sustainable value where we live, work, and operate. Visit pinegaterenewables.com slash learn more. How can U.S. policy further drive the goals of transition through incentives and funding, net metering and interconnection, streamline permitting and regulatory processes? The panel discussion earlier featured Abigail Ross Hopper. She's the president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association. Abigail joins me now to further explore U.S. solar policy. Abby, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us again. So tell me, 
the conference so far? What have been your key takeaways? What do you find really interesting? Well, I had a really interesting panel this morning that I got the privilege of participating in with uh, Becca Albertus-Jones from DOE. And one of the things I thought worked really well with the two of us on that panel was it was a really interesting conversation about how government and the industry work together. So there are a couple of examples where DOE does the research, does the sort of fact checking, right, creates the information, and then the industry either takes it to communities or takes it to policymakers and advocates for a position that benefits all of us. So we talked about community engagement, we talked about information for citing, we talked about domestic content and domestic manufacturing, and I thought it was just a good way for the audience to see how these different parts work together. That was one important takeaway so far. Yeah, so what are you looking forward to that's still on the agenda? Batteries. <laughs> you know, I'm really looking forward to talking more about storage. I think that obviously we all think that's such a key part of the growth of our industry. And so more information about that. I thought that Michelle's introduction this morning, where she went over all of the data and sort of what the industry is going to do and what the projections are, was fascinating. You know, I thought that the area in which she identified opportunities for growth, the number three of the three points she made was so critical. And, you know, she identified just one example where there's $7 billion of opportunity, and that's just one. Right. And I think as entrepreneurs in the room, we're all thinking about what part of this could be mine, right? What part of this can my company participate in? And so, you know, that's sort of how I'm thinking and what my ears are listening for as I'm hearing all these panels is what else can I be doing? What can my companies be doing? What opportunities are there? And how am I going to take advantage of that? Yeah, one of the topics that continues to come up is the combination of solar and storage together as driving the industry forward. How do you see that evolving over the next couple of years and really what needs to be done to help make that more of an impact? Yeah, well, I think Michelle did a great job of talking about the data and the attachment rates and how that's going to continue to increase pretty dramatically and that there are different policies that are driving that. Certainly customers as well are driving that. I think what's going to continue to make that a requirement are some of the net metering policies, obviously California being one. But I think this idea, we talked a little bit on my panel about resilience and the really important role that resilience plays. If we think about communities and we think about local jurisdictions and the kind of ways that corporates and counties and towns are thinking about what they want their energy mix to look like, resilience is playing a larger and larger part. And so pairing solar with storage is going to be a more important element of that energy mix. And I think that'll continue to drive a fair amount of storage adoption. And, and you know, on our last podcast, we talked a lot about the regulatory environment. How did that panel discussion go around the IRA and its impact overall to a lot of the companies that are not only presenting during this conference, but in attendance as well? What we continue to hear is that there still remains some uncertainty around the regulatory construct, right? There, even since we last spoke, David, there's been more guidance issued around transferability and direct pay. And yet there's still some questions that remain. We're still trying to figure out domestic content and we still need more clarification from the Department of Treasury around that. And that, I think, is a theme at this conference is that we're making progress, but we're certainly not there yet in terms of clarity. I have had some conversations with insurers who are already insuring around 
domestic content risk and around energy community risk. And so I think that's an interesting development, right? That projects are moving forward with that risk insured. But I still think there's capital on the sidelines waiting for more clarity. And so I think we'll continue to hear that over the next day and a half as we wait for more guidance. It's interesting because last year when we did this summit, we were just coming off the news that the Biden administration had paused the tariffs for a while. So that was impactful to the solar industry. And then this year we're coming off, of, as we talked about, a record quarter for solar. Do you see that progressing over the next couple quarters, especially with the momentum that we're seeing at this conference? Yeah, I do. I think that we are going to continue to see pretty intense momentum build. We see it across sectors. I think some of the supply chain challenges that we had in 2022 are being ameliorated and we'll continue to see growth. Even though there is, I think, capital sitting on the sidelines, I think there's still a pace of growth that will continue to grow. And as Michelle showed in her presentation this morning, what was and what will be are not the same. And that was a striking slide. If your listeners haven't seen that slide, I would figure out a way to take a peek at it because it shows sort of what has been incremental growth is now exponential growth. And it, again, if you think about what does that mean for your company and what does that mean for the future of our industry, it's pretty significant. And I, for one, am pretty bullish that that it will be our future. Well, yeah, you get the economies of scale going and the other momentum and capital feeling more comfortable. Also with some of the incentives that the government's providing to help de-risk some of the money that's out there for them. You got a lot of different pieces coming together. So like I said, just this conference last year to this year, continued momentum. And hearing your comments about continuing on the record quarter for at least the remainder of the year and hopefully uh, years to come. Yes. It's an exciting time. And the other thing that I will say that I think is a theme I'm hearing at this conference is really this focus on equity. I know Becca and I both spoke about it. It's certainly critical to the Biden administration. It's inherent in all of the IRA provisions and the guidance that's coming out is ensuring that the benefits of all of this development are being infused across the economy, right, into communities across our nation. And so I think that that will be one of the ways in which we hold ourselves accountable is by making sure that we're building solar and storage and deploying in all areas. And so hopefully when we gather again next year, right, we can put up a beautiful map when Mackenzie will be tracking where these deployments are happening and we can look at the energy communities and see that the policies are really driving action and that the vision of equity is being realized. Yeah, everybody can take part of the energy transition and enjoy renewable power in not just more developed communities or areas that it's truly across the globe. Absolutely. Well, Abby, listen, I appreciate you stopping by again. Yes. It was great seeing you. Uh, so thanks for the time. Wonderful to see you. Dr. Diana Ahmed is Chief Strategy Officer at One. One, or Our Next Energy, is an energy storage company focused on battery technologies. And Diana explains what One is all about. So uh, one, our next energy, we're an energy storage manufacturer uh, headquartered in Novi, Michigan. We're the largest independent American cell manufacturer. Uh, we're working to bring uh, batteries to service the commercial electric vehicle market, 
consumer electric vehicle market, but you know, topically today for the utility scale energy storage marketplace. We've brought a, our first product into production this year. Um, we're a three-year-old company, about 400 full-time employees, and are, are growing rapidly just given the demand uh, for decarbonization um, broadly. But we're stepping into cell manufacturing uh, beginning in 2025 uh, with our Gigafactory that's headquartered in Michigan, which will have over 2,000 full-time employees and be 20 gigawatt hours at scale by uh, end of 2026. Great. And and you're a sponsor uh, of the summit uh, this week. Why is it important for companies such as one to sponsor events like these? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, post-COVID, it's really important to bring folks together. Um, And I think in particular in the post-IRA world that we're living in, it's like the moment right now for us to be coming together and talking about ways to collaborate. I think what's happening in the United States right now, we're revaluing manufacturing. We are onshoring jobs, we're onshoring supply chain, uh, and events like this allow um, you know, companies like us that can be a supplier into uh, a lot of the projects that are, are going into development to, to build that connective tissue. Um, we're really building an industry right now from the ground up in clean tech, broadly speaking, but then in batteries, there's so much growth right now. So we very much value being able to be a part of these conversations, understand you know, from the perspective of solar deployment, the need for batteries, batteries now that have the ability to have a standalone investment tax credit for the first time because of the IRA. Um, we're really excited to just be here to have these conversations and um, hopefully walk away with partnerships uh, in the future. Yeah, one of the key takeaways so far in the summit has been the joining of solar uh, with storage, which I also think is, is important to help you know drive this initiative forward. What are your thoughts on that and do you see it gaining momentum in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So what the Inflation Reduction Act has done is it's given manufacturers like one, the upside on locally producing cells, which is an incredibly capital intensive business, requires a lot of workforce development and training, time uh, and investment and expertise. Um, But because we have these tax credits, we're able to scale faster. And then because we have the demand side tax credits, particularly the standalone ITC for storage, we're seeing a, a higher demand. We're able to offer products at a competitive price point, and then with the tax credit, it actually makes the deployment of storage so much more economically viable than it has ever been. And we're seeing even demand not only in the utility sector, but within commercial and industrial applications, because now it is affordable to you know, not curtail the energy, um, but actually store it and, and really rethink the way in which we can leverage renewable energy. I, I actually think what we're seeing is the transition to renewable energy being able to be baseload. Uh, and we're working on projects like that, which is really exciting. That's great. Yeah, and with the IRA uh, tax incentives also helping, to your earlier point, promote domestic production in terms of the amount of materials and where they're sourced from going into the batteries. And there's just so many different technologies out there uh, that are being developed. How do you see those different technologies using different compositions within the battery uh, playing out over the next few years? Yeah, you know, I think like it's important to remember that the innovation in energy storage and in batteries was born here in the US. So we've been innovating on batteries since like 
you know, John Goodenough invented lithium-ion batteries. Um, so we are going to continue to see the development of more and more advanced technologies. Um, lithium-ion technologies, I think, are, are here to stay for some time, um, and they are the technology that is manufacturably scalable and economically scalable right now. So we're investing in lithium-iron phosphate cell manufacturing capability. We think that LFP and the advancements there make it viable across the markets that we're addressing. But at the same time, we're prioritizing the research and development um, with our, our R&D center that's here in Fremont um, so that we can stay ahead of the curve. I think the, the way in which for the U.S. to maintain competitiveness is that we need to be um, looking forward and investing now. We need to be scaling the manufacturing of what we can manufacture now, but then have that feedback loop to bring advanced technologies in. On the supply chain side, I think it's a very strategic thing for us to be developing a breadth of technologies because we don't want to be resource constrained as we continue to scale this industry. Prioritizing for us an iron-based chemistry allows us to avoid nickel and cobalt, which are two of the more constrained critical minerals. You know, lithium, of course, we are scaling a lot of domestic and North American um, capacity with respect to mines and brining operations being brought online. Um, but I think then the advent of like sodium ion technology is important and we should be um, developing that diversity of ways in which we can continue towards that decarbonized future. I completely agree. And, and, and I mean, how, how are you seeing the innovation of the longer duration storage? You know, it seems like we continue to make advancements for longer duration, but how do you see that continuing? Yeah, I, I think that's another point that's really important, right? The When we think about the pairing of storage with renewable energy infrastructure, you know, wind, but like solar in particular, the um, co-location of long duration energy storage with lithium ion, you know, LFP, for example, storage systems is valuable because you can um, sustain greater amounts of prospective blackouts and other challenges. And in, in particular, in commercial and industrial applications, that is a really important thing. If we're moving towards baseload, you also have to have the reserves. And I think long duration energy storage offers that reserve capability. So I see it as very complementary um, to the technology that we're developing. And we are excited about that you know, growth in that industry as well. Well, great. Well, what are you most excited about for the remainder of the conference? Uh, I'm excited to learn more about the projects that are happening across the United States and, and meet more of the players that are, are making these investments. And I think thinking about the diversity of use cases of solar plus storage and the ways in which um, we can start to penetrate the market. You know, I think what what's really exciting is that it's it's not just about installing utility scale energy storage. It's about deploying it, thinking about resiliency, thinking about community resiliency and the ways in which we can even start decarbonizing manufacturing by co-locating solar and storage with like, you know, manufacturing efforts like ours even. We're actually doing a project uh, in West Virginia where we're creating a fully islanded solar plus storage um, system uh, in partnership with Berkshire Hathaway Energy Renewables for a titanium smelting facility. And I think think that that can be a part of, you know, a model that can be adopted across the U.S. So we're just excited to have those conversations and and uh, see what can come out of the next two days. Appreciate you stopping by and, and spending time with us. Really interesting to hear more about one and, and what you guys are doing on the storage front. Awesome. Thank you for having me, David. Appreciate it. 
just came out of the last session, and one of the big topics was utility-scale solar. Uh, so I'm joined right now by Colin Caulfield, Vice President of American Sales for Soltech. So Colin, welcome. Thank you so much, David. I'm happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about your work with Soltech. Sure. So I've been working with Soltech for seven and a half years now. I'm the Vice President of Sales for North America. For people that aren't familiar with Soltech, we are a manufacturer of single-axis trackers, uh, utility-scale projects primarily. We have two products. We have one that is a one-portrait product that is intended for really favorable conditions, right? You might have like a, a nice flat desert site with friendly soils, and it is, it's intended to get to a really low price per watt on the sale, right? And, and get to a low LCOE just by virtue of that, right? Uh, being really easy to install, having fewer parts and pieces, and not being costly on the sale side. By contrast, we also have a two-portrait, which is more for the type of project that has site challenges. They might be in the way of having slopes or uh, having site constraints on the buildable area and needing to be able to fit more DC power into less space. Hilly sites, having to reduce the number of foundations. I've even seen it applied to DC-coupled storage sites that are really trying to pack a lot of DC into little space. Aside from that, we're also an EPC contractor, but that is focused more on the distributed generation market that you'll see in the Northeast, where we not only supply our products to the projects, but we also do a lot of the early stage development work. We try and work hand in hand with our customers. And then of course we have the synergies that come along with being both the tracker supplier, which is like the primary thing that you have to engineer and design into these projects and the EPC. So there's a lot less friction that can come about with a traditional situation where an EPC might be buying a product and having to make it work and, and work within the constraints that that OEM has. So we're coming off a, a record quarter for solar. How are you seeing business? I mean, is there still a lot of momentum behind it and you see that continuing? I see a ton of momentum. We had a very full year on the distributed generation EPC jobs. We've recently closed up some big supply contracts for some jobs that are slated to be built in the early part of next year and actually starting later this year. So yeah, I mean, the market's been totally on fire and I'm, I'm only seeing more interest and more opportunities. What challenges are you seeing? Some of the stuff I was alluding to before, I mean, for some of the projects, well, and just, just to go back to the question, challenges to whom? To, to us at Soltech or? Challenges for both Soltech and the industry in general. Like, what do you see some of the obstacles or challenges really facing the industry over the next couple of years? Ah, sure. The industry has issues with bottleneck when it comes to interconnection availability transmission lines. So like basic infrastructure stuff that needs to get tackled in order to hit some of these goals, right? Because folks can come up with development assets, they can come up with theoretical projects that could be built that will have so much capacity that would deliver so much power, but there needs to be that infrastructure in place so that they can deliver the power that would come with the projects they would build. So that's like industry-wide challenge or thing that could threaten the, the growth at the scale that is being projected currently. For Soltech, I mean, we've done our part to have products that are geared to the challenges that you have. Kind of what I was describing before. It's like, are we competing based on, we need to get really inexpensive on our sale price and on how easy is it to install our, our products such that you can bring the LCOE down? Or do we have to have something that's a little more bespoke so that you can deal with the type of site challenges that you could run into where, yeah, you got a lot of slopes, you got 
hazards of some variety or, or another. And our product has to be designed, engineered such that we overcome those challenges for our, for our customers. How do you think we can solve some of those interconnection issues? I mean, is it, I mean, it, probably a combination of regulatory, investment, you know, you name it. I mean, you're hitting it, right? It's like, I don't know how much more to add aside from that. It's, it's investment and it's, it's giving the green light to some of these projects so that they happen, right? The, the interconnection has to be built in, the transmission lines have to be built in so that we can carry the power from point A to point B. It's that simple. So how are you enjoying the conference so far? I mean, any key takeaways or really interesting topics you've heard? The subject matter has been incredible. The expertise that's been on stage, likewise, incredible. My interest has been piqued by how many people are interested in this agrivoltaic concept where you would have dual use of land. And there's so many challenges with it. I was up on stage earlier with Jenya talking about like what the challenges are for having multi-uses of sites where you have maybe competing interests for the land. But the idea of it, if you can kind of navigate that both logistically, practically, and then of course balancing those competing interests is awesome, you know, because then you have so many of these sites that traditionally would have been ag and can now be used to farm watts, kilowatt hours, and then still be used to take advantage of the land for their farming capacities that they had been historically. And it's, it's the ideal that I would like to see happen. And, and I was happy to hear that there's that much of an interest in it in the industry. And I hope it doesn't just become like a passing fad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of innovative ideas coming up in the energy <laughs> yeah. transition, and it's, uh, it's nice to see different angles coming totally. to solve uh, the same problem. Totally, yeah. So Soltech is a, is a sponsor of the event. I mean, how important is it for you guys to sponsor events like this and, and get the word out there? I guess it's hugely important. It's important for us to be able to communicate what we're doing to overcome some of the challenges that I was describing before. Um, it's important for me to participate in these in these events and hear what the market trends are and how we can adjust for them. Um, and really just for me to know what kind of new challenges are coming up so that I can inform my team back at home as far as like giving the direction to the product and the, the mission statement of Soltech so that we're in line with the zeitgeist. That's the value that I see in participating in these. Well, great. Well, we appreciate you sponsoring the event and also you stopping by and talking with me today. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference, but appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, that's a wrap on day one here at the Solar and Energy Storage Summit in San Francisco. It's been a a great day. Uh, Looking forward to tomorrow, but a lot of great discussions today, not only with the people that we had on the show, but just walking around and continuing to network with other individuals and came up with a lot of prospects uh, for topics and guests on future interchange shows. Well, thanks for joining us today, and hopefully you can join us for tomorrow as well, where we will be recapping uh, day two of the Solar and Energy Storage Summit. Thanks for joining us.